strolling back to God. Uh, or the other title, subtitle, I was going to call it originally, um, Returning to God. That's the theme. In fact, there's a Hebrew word that Jeremiah uses quite a lot in this scripture, this passage, not just chapter 3, but really the, you know, his whole message to them is this Hebrew word for return, that God is challenging his people to return. Uh, and, and so that's used so many times, to return to the Lord. But the subtitle of the message, or the original message, I was thinking of calling it Returning to God Casually. And we look at verse 1, and let's go back to it, because we, we really set, we spent a lot of time last, uh, two weeks ago rather, on, on the context. They say, is how Jeremiah starts. And then he begins to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24, a very important passage to the Jews, the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24. They say, and this is what he's quoting, If a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? So all of that is based on the four verses in Deuteronomy 24. We expounded that uh, two weeks ago. And we saw that this, not only at this time, because Jeremiah refers to it, but throughout Israel's history, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, would become a very significant text. So much so that the the rabbis commented on it intensely in the Talmud, uh, and it created great controversy. So when Jesus comes along the scene, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes were... Uh, trying to entangle him and get him to make comment on a debate of his day during Jesus' time. And we saw last week or two weeks ago again that there was a controversy uh, on different interpretations. What is Deuteronomy 24 uh, verses 1 through 4 saying? Um, It has to do with basically banning second marriages in certain contexts. And we saw in Jesus' time now which we're fast-forwarding from Deuteronomy 24, there was the house of, uh, uh, what was it, let me, the house of the Shimeites and the house of the Hillelites, they they had two different takes on it and different branches of those takes. The Shilalites were very loose in their scripture and uh, as far as basically a man could could, uh, divorce his wife for any old reason he wanted to. And the Hillelites had a more conservative view and, and they, they took the fact that uh, marital infidelity, certain, you know, that there was a case for a bill of divorcement, you know, that that's what Deuteronomy chapter 24 definitely allows. But they, they would say, based on that text, that it's, you know, only if there's been sexual immorality. You know, and so that was debated. So Jesus commented on that. And someday we will expound that, probably during a Bible study, as far as looking at the New Testament passages that address that. But Jeremiah is bringing it up. And he's bringing it up not, to, not in the way that they did in Jesus' time. He's just bringing it up first to acknowledge, okay, here's a law that you have. And you know, in fact, he says, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? And the law in Deuteronomy 24 would make that very clear. No, you cannot go back and marry your first wife. It wasn't forbidding Divorce and remarriage, and you remember that was the whole idea of Deuteronomy 24 we addressed two weeks ago and in our Bible study, you know, what what possible scenarios for that. But Jeremiah doesn't go into all that. 
and maybe that hadn't developed yet, but he's just, they knew that based on that simple law, that the answer would be no. And now he's making the application to them. Uh, And so as they're saying no to this answer, they were only thinking of the, the specifics of the law. Remember Deuteronomy 24 is all about human relationship of a marriage, a husband and a wife, and then marital infidelity and that whole mess. Um, he wasn't, you know, or, or in Deuteronomy 24, there's no spiritual application there in, you know, likening Israel to the wife and Jehovah to the husband. That's now, this is like, it's almost like, um, I said this before, uh, two weeks ago, it's like, a, it's like that, that um, thou art the man. Remember when uh, the prophet Nathan approaches David and says, gives him the story about the two sheep? I think we looked at that too. And he said, you know, what should happen to the man that stole that other person's sheep? And David, uh, able to get an objective perspective on his own life for the first time, but not realizing it's his own life, you know, really comes down overly harshly in that scenario about a lamb. And then you remember what the prophet said, thou art the man. Well, this is the same way. You know, Jeremiah is just saying, hey, you remember that law where God says, you know, in this scenario, if, if the wife leaves and then comes back, can a husband take her back? And of course, they'd all be like, no. And then it's almost like Jeremiah is saying, instead of thou art the man, thou art the woman. You know, because they were the ones that were unfaithful to Jehovah, their husband. And so, you know, it's, it's like he's saying that, they, that they did that. Shall not, and now, here's where we're going to, we, we ended here two weeks ago. I want to pick up with this. It was the second point. Uh, last week we saw, or two weeks ago, we saw the context, and then we saw the contamination, and then we saw the concern. So we're picking up with, part, with the second point there, the contamination. And this is the point. This is the point of Deuteronomy 24, uh, as far as the law. In many of God's instructions in the law, there were things that God said to Israel, this is what you have to do if you become defiled. Now, when you and I think of that idea, to be defiled, we automatically think of, you know, contamination. We automatically kind of assume that he's always talking about evil doing. But in the Old Testament laws, Sometimes, you know, if you defiled yourself, it was because of sin. Sometimes it was just everyday matters of life. And we looked at the example of um, if you touched a dead body. Now, if you have a loved one that's dying and you're there and then they pass and you're with them and you're touching them, you've defiled yourself. It's not that you've done anything wrong. But ceremonially, you're unclean and so there was a certain thing you had to do. And even a better example is when a woman gave birth to a child... Uh, you know, there was a certain thing that she had to do um, to, uh, you know, because she was defiled. And you remember Mary, even Mary, when she delivered Jesus, had to go offer the turtle doves and, and that kind of thing. Um, so simply being defiled was not because you sinned, but to ignore God's instructions regarding defilement would be to pollute the land. Now, that was a problem. Um, 
to, implu- to pollute the land implied desecration or deliberate profaning. Uh, somebody wants, somebody defined or dis- defined the idea of polluting. That when you, so in other words, if let's say your your relative dies, and you know that you're touching the corpse or whatever, you were with them when they passed, uh, and you and you purposely ignored God's instructions. Okay, here's what you have to do. You have to do this, and then you'll be unclean or you'll be clean the next morning. And it's just His law. You have a baby, you have a child, and you totally ignore God's standards for, you know, defilement, then you're polluting the land. Then there's consequences because you're specifically ignoring. You're totally disregarding your relationship with God. And that is the idea. So someone defined the idea of profaning as an act or attitude through which a state of sacred relation to the Godhead is intentionally set aside. I want to say something about this here because Sometimes you and I understand in the Old Testament there's a lot of ceremonial laws, there's a lot of laws for cleanliness and what they could eat, what they couldn't eat, and it can be overwhelming. Sometimes in the very text, it'll tell us why God has instituted that, you know, for their own betterment. Sometimes it doesn't give us the answer, and sometimes we don't know. Uh, and, and understand that a lot of those ceremonial laws were for Israel uh, in their relationship with him. Uh, and so again, clearly God was talking to Judah using this scenario of of this relationship. And he's saying, now, if you, if a husband or a wife leaves her husband, goes and marries another, and then comes back to the husband, can he take her back again? And they all be like, no, we know. Deuteronomy 24, you can't do that. And then he says, well, then what have you done to me? And that was that was the one-two punch. But it reminded me, I remember as a young man before I got saved, uh, one of my one the music group that I really liked, and this is kind of a petty, silly thing, but it it drove home this point that that came to my mind. I remember hearing uh, that a music group that I liked had these rules for when they went around touring to different venues, and they had all these instructions on what needed to be followed as far as how they set up their instruments and the lighting, and and they had one um, particular requirement in their long list of, of rules. Which I remember, what, you know, years ago when I heard it, it's like this is ridiculous. That in their dressing rooms they were they there could not be brown M and M's. You could have M and M's candy. You all know what M and M's are, right? But they you could not have brown M and M's. And I remember when I read that years ago, I'm like, wow, what divas, you know? I mean, that is talk about petty. Why would you have a law, you know, why would you have a requirement here? And I, for a long time, I just thought, well, those, you know, and many of those, the rock stars and all that, they were just so into themselves. And, and I just kind of dismissed it like, well, there you go. That's typical of that group. And then uh, a while back in my news feed, I saw something about brown M&Ms. I'm like, you know, in the group. And I thought, I got to read it. And lo and behold, I found out why they did that. And uh, after all, you know, I looked at that. Now, here's, here's what it was. They'd go touring. Just imagine now. And uh, there be they had requirements as far as setting their music up, the lighting, and safety things as far as the electronics, and they specified them very clearly because they'd been to many places where they had, you know, somebody didn't do something right, and it ended up reflecting on them and and just really making for a bad evening, and so they had all these requirements, 
But they were so, you know, instead of the group going and checking all the different things, all right, we've got to go through and make sure, did they plug this in? Did they do this? Did they do that? They just put something in there that was like random, that they could just go into their dressing room and see whether they followed the instructions to a T. And, if they, and, you know, if they went to a venue and, and all their crew people did it, they went, to, looked at the M&Ms, and if they saw brown M&Ms, it's like, okay, they, they, uh, they did not follow the rules, which means that other things are probably wrong. Now, I say all that, and when I saw that, I, you, you hear that and you're like, okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? I understand that. Well, you know, we don't know all the reasons why God gives us some of those Old Testament laws and some of them, honestly, God, you know, some of them people have like thought, wow, that is, why would God do that? And they've, you know, they've criticized and condemned God for what seems to them in our limited knowledge from so long ago to a context that we know very, you know, there's things we don't know about. And we're going to criticize God? Why don't we do what Job did and let God be God? And realize, you know, we know God's, I know God's character, and I hope you do too, that God doesn't do anything frivolously. I don't understand why he had some of those, those laws, but I know he had them for a reason. And I know that when we find out at the end, you know, we're not going to say, God, you should have done something, so you should have done that differently. None of us are going to say that, because he is the omniscient God. So, um, anyway, so think of this now. This, this challenge of Jeremiah is... Basically, he's not disputing why God gave that law in Deuteronomy 24 in the first place. Fast forward to Jesus coming and he would let them know because of the hardness of your hearts. I allowed you to have a bill of divorcement. And, you know, he was just, again, commenting on that uh, debate that was going on. But the point was he wanted them to follow him. Now, and he gave this scenario that's clearly Deuteronomy 24 tells the answer. And Jeremiah says, if this happens... Won't you defile the land? And they're all like, yeah, that we definitely, we know that. And then it's like he's saying, okay, now guess what you've done? And he puts it in the spiritual realm and says, you have been unfaithful to your, your husband, Jehovah God. You've, you've committed whoredoms. You've committed uh, prostitution by going after the gods of the Canaanites. You claim you're still in a relationship with Jehovah. You're still going through some of the motions, but you're not being faithful to him. Uh, you know, in fact, you haven't just gone and remarried one other, you know, another husband. You've actually played the harlot and then come back to me. In fact, that's why uh, Jose or uh, what was his name? Hosea. You remember Hosea? And again, this is one of those things where you might think, why would God do this? Clearly, you know, God, it, marriage is honorable in all, in all. The New Testament says the bed undefiled. Whoremongers and adulterers, God would judge. God is against uh, unfaithfulness in marriage, right? Would you all agree with that? Right. And yet God says to, to Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute, someone who's been, with, been, been with multiple men, and I want you to pursue her and be faithful to her and love her. Why would God do that? He was setting up an example because that's exactly what Israel, what the Jews were doing to him. And he was, he, it was the only way he could get through because they could relate to that. They understood that. Oh, poor Hosea. You know, he, must, he was quite a guy. Can you imagine that being required? Now, some, sometimes God, and this goes back to the, why would God do that? You know, sometimes God would require 
the prophets to do some, in what humanly, again, from our perspective, is pretty, pretty bizarre things. I think it was Ezekiel. His, his, um, God's instructions to Ezekiel for an extended period of time was, hey, when you get up in the morning, I want you to go and lay on your side all day. Just lay on one side. And then, and, and if, like, things like that. Why would God do that? And they were always object lessons. You know, imagine if you knew Ezekiel, and you're walking by his house every day, and, oh, there's Ezekiel out on his front yard, and he's just laying on his side. And every day you go by, he's just laying on his side. How's that for a day's work? And then, you know, after a certain amount of time, he turned around, and he laid on the other side. I think that's how it went. And, you know, but imagine, that's going to get in their head. If picturing Ezekiel there, doing that. And then when he preached and said, now here's, here's what this means, that's an object lesson they're not going to forget. And God is so good that way, to drive the point home. And that's what he's doing here. So, now, let's go to this. Uh, again, Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, again, I'll read it. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him, become another man, shall he return unto her again? Shall not the land be greatly polluted? And it would because of their disregard for, for that. But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. And then here's the key. This is what we look at. This is the focus for tonight now. The rest. Yet return again to me. One commentator, expositor of Hebrew made this statement. He said, uh, a man could turn could not turn back to a wife who has been with a number of men, could he? Turning back to Yahweh is not a possibility for Jerusalem when she has been with a number of partners. Could she turn back? Could he agree to it? And then the commentator says, the message, the message is, this is now in verse 1, ends in mid-air or mid-sentence with an ambiguous verb. So there's two possible ways that Hebrew interpreters that look at that, yet return again to me, which is kind of like, it doesn't, it doesn't give you a lot. It's, it's again, it's in mid-sentence. And there's two possible ways to interpret it. And I want to go back to, I want to quote again, um, I believe the Council of the King James Translators is phenomenal. On, um, and in their section in the preface, under they're defending why they put marginal notes in there, and first of all, here was the controversy of the day, which is still today a controversy. Um, in the preface to the King James Translator, some peradventure, Miles Smith says, some people um, would have, they, they would not want a variety of scents to be set in the margins. They're all against it. They were very against having marginal notes at all in the King James Translation or any Bible. Why? Lest the authority of the Scriptures for deciding of controversies by that show of uncertainty. In other words, if they put, like they put the English translation, what they think it says, and then they give, you know, this could possibly be this, instead of what we translated, that that would be a show of uncertainty. And it would weaken, they're arguing, because this was, this was why people didn't want them to put marginal notes. Because it won't, it won't give the Scriptures authority if you're not exactly sure what is being said? So lest the authority of Scripture for deciding of controversies by that show of uncertainty should somewhat be shaken. And then they say this. And this is collective. By the way, Miles Smith spoke on behalf of all the translators. And they were all in unison about their philosophy, especially of translation. 
He says, we hold their judgment not to be so sound in this point. Then he makes this point. He says, it has pleased God and his divine providence here and there to scatter words and sentences of that difficulty and doubtfulness, not in doctrinal points that concern salvation, for in such it hath been vouched that the scriptures are plain, but in matters of less moment or less importance. In other words, there's some, when it comes to translating, they were saying this, King James translators, some things are difficult. Not the things about salvation, but there's some things where we're not exactly sure and um, but they're not as significant as like the passages on salvation. And he says that fearfulness would better beseem us than confidence. That is that's their philosophy, and I think they're on target. And by the way, that is also the philosophy of Erasmus when he gave us the Texas Receptus. That was also the philosophy of um, what's his name, Frederick Ambrose Scrivener who gave us the version of the TR that we use today. All of them had prefaces, and they communicated their, clearly their, their philosophy, uh, and it's being ignored today. But anyway, somebody has pointed this out, and I want to bring this in, into our text today. They, they, he said, uh, a guy named Tim, Timothy Berg made this statement. He said, they're epistemological. Did your eyes just gloss over when I said epistemological? Because mine did when I read it. <laughs> what on earth is epistemological? I had to look it up. Relating to the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods, validity, and scope, and the distinction between justified belief and opinion. So, in other words, he's saying their philosophical foundation is ultimately rooted. This is an incredible point. This goes along with what the preface to the KJV was saying. Is ultimately rooted in a craving for absolute certainty about the text of Scripture, which in their mind is more powerful than any desire to follow truth. Some people have said and observed, we have exchanged the pursuit of certainty for the pursuit of truth. In other words, instead of pursuing truth, we just want to pursue certainty. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're wrong, as long as, long as you are certain. If there comes a time where there's a possibility that an interpretation you hold or a, a translation of a verse, you may not be so sure. The King James translators are again saying it's better not to dogmatize. So we're going to put a marginal note there. You may not like it because it might seem like the scriptures aren't as authoritative, but they are as authoritative. You just have to dig further to find out exactly what they're saying. So in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 1, this, this hanging verb, this sentence, as far as what is God saying when he says, you're going to return to me? There's two, and there may be more, but there's two main possibilities. It could be translated, uh, or could be, he could be saying, but turn back to me, that is, I don't have to be bound by that rule. You're going to turn back to me. He's saying, this rule, Deuteronomy 24, in, in our relationship, um, I will not deal with you according to the normal rule, but according to my prerogative. So he's like inviting them saying, you want to turn back to me? I know that rule. I know that, you know, first of all, he's the one that's making the application spiritually to their immorality, their spiritual immorality. And again, he's saying, you're going to return to me? Like, you know, the normal rule is you can't do that. But I, I, I want you to come back and, and I'm going to exercise my prerogative to take you back. That's, that's one possibility. 
Or it could be that he's saying, so you, you would turn back to me? I would pollute myself, you know, because of that could go either way. But the question is, he's saying, you want to turn back to me? And here's, here's you know, no matter what direction you go there, there is definitely, in Jeremiah's communication, there is a, if you could say, a skepticism about the sincerity of their repentance. Oh, you, oh, you want to come back to me? And when you read the next few verses, which we'll probably do next week, Lord willing, when you read the next few verses, you realize that he's saying, he's, he's going to say, now, this is what you've done. You've done this, you've done this, you've done this. And, and all of a sudden, you, you know, the, the idea, you're going to come back to me? Jeremiah, it's, it's as if Jeremiah... He has seen the people of Judah so bent on embracing the idolatry of the Canaanites and following their false gods that Jeremiah, it's almost like John the Baptist, you know, bring forth proof of your repentance. You know, I want to see some change that you have genuinely repented. So, what we want to do, and I, I remind you, the issue here has to do with, and God even says it um, in the middle of verse 1, shall not that land be greatly polluted? In other words, if you violate what I say as far as defilement, you know, you've already done that by playing the harlot. And, And it's almost like he's saying, you know, is there even the possibility that you can come back to me? Wouldn't that defile the land? He's going back to that. He's trying to, he's trying to get them to think. Listen, your rebellion is so serious. Your, your fornication, your spiritual going after these false gods, violating our covenant, this is so serious. Isn't that going to pollute the land? I want to read to you some scriptures because, again, it wasn't necessarily about the defilement, as in some of those other laws, where you simply had to if you wanted to give consideration for Jehovah at all, if you found yourself touching a dead corpse, if you were a woman having a baby or many other things, you just went through the process of cleansing yourself, waiting the time, because you cared about Jehovah. You cared about your relationship to God. It mattered. And that's, that's the thing that seems that Jeremiah is after here. It's, like, it's almost like Mac Lynch's song, uh, where is it Gideon? If it's if he even wrote it, I forget. But you know, uh, standards have fallen. Good good men have fallen. Standards are shaken. And then he said, "Where is the answer? Who even cares?" And, and that's like Jeremiah. It's like, do you really care? Who even cares? Do you even want to return to Jehovah? Hence the word strolling back to God or coming returning to God casually. So listen to these. And so here's the the challenge. When he says. Shall not that land be greatly polluted? Here was God establishing how Israel could pollute the land. Deuteronomy 24, um, verse 4, Her former husband which sent her away, and this was the main forbidding. It wasn't forbidding divorce and remarriage. It was even once or twice. It was, it was, it was condemning going back to your first, your previous husband once you went to another husband. Uh, and it says in Deuteronomy 24, Her former husband which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. 
and shalt and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So that would defile the land. Leviticus 18.25 says, The land that is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants when they disregard their relationship with Jehovah. Verse 28 of Leviticus 18, that That the land spew not you out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. That's an important verse. Let me read that again. Because so many people claim, you know, how could Israel be justified in going in and taking over someone else's land the way they did it? Well, let's remember who owns the land. The land that the, uh, he's in challenging Israel to obedience, Leviticus 18.28, that the land spew not you out also. So they went in and they had to respect their relationship. They had to respect the owner of the land, which was Almighty God, who created everything. And just like the Canaanites totally polluted the land and had no regard, and therefore they forfeited it. It was not mean Israel that came in and took over. It was God that said, I'm giving you this land, because they forfeited it. But now he's telling Israel, you can pollute the land too. You be careful. You can do the same thing. Then the next chapter, Leviticus 19.29, God says to Israel collectively and to the husbands, to the dads, do not prostitute thy daughter, lest the land fall to whoredom and the land become full of wickedness. Hosea 4.1, there's Amos, there's so many challenges where God says, listen, if you ignore my laws regarding defilement, you you don't follow, you ignore our relationship, you're going to defile the land. And that has consequences. It's all about his relationship with his people. So the question then is whether Israel or Judah specifically, who had sinned so deeply, may lightly decide to return to Yahweh as as if not, not much had happened. It's the idea of this verse. Return ye again. It's like Jeremiah needed to be persuaded that they were sincere. I want to. I want to now. Now that we understand, that's the context of this verse. Um, we want to now look at a New Testament application because God is very concerned about believers when it comes to repentance. I want you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter seven. Now, there's a good chance Charlie may be moving into Second Corinthians down the road, but Charlie, by next week, will forget what I've said in the next few minutes anyway. So, Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter seven. Paul's writing this letter, and uh, you remember he was writing, writing to them. Now, remember, there was, a, there was a first letter, 1 Corinthians. Then they, there's a second letter they believe they call the tear-stained letter. Uh, and, and then there's this letter, the follow-up. And it was, even in, verse, in the first letter, Paul was challenging them. There was, and Charlie's already dealt with this in 1 Corinthians 5. Fornication among you, such as been not been named among the Gentiles. They were puffed up. They were not taking it seriously. And so now Paul is going to write about his sorrow that he, he did in writing to them. And he says this in verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent. What is that? Is Paul a double-minded man? No, he's not at all. He's sharing the emotions that he went through when he was writing the letter. Anytime a believer needs to exhort, 
needs to, anytime a parent needs to use strong words, exhortation, scolding, rebuking a child, or rebuking another believer, there is a risk, is there not, uh, of hurting someone's feelings, of offending someone. And, he's, and so that he's saying, you know, I do not repent, though I did repent. In other words, it was hard for Paul to write this letter because he knew there, there would be some hurt feelings, especially if they didn't respond properly. By the way, today, beloved, there is that same risk, is there not? In church discipline, church discipline is something that God challenges the church to do lovingly if they care about someone. But in the atmosphere we live in in America is the least popular thing you can do. What, what is the, the perspective today is just embrace and accept everyone and everything. There's nothing wrong. You have your truth. I have my truth. So shut up and tolerate it. That's the world's message, isn't it? Is that what God says? No. If we love someone and we see someone doing something self-destructive or something that's ultimately affecting their relationship with God, if we love them, we're going to confront them. We're going to do what Paul did, risking hurting their feelings. And, and, and folks, to today, too many churches are just opting to not bring in controversy. So churches today don't do church discipline at all because, you know, there's repercussions. And, and when someone does, by the way, keep this in mind. I, I've come to realize this. When a church does exercise church discipline, because of what Paul says, I, I, I am not sorry. I do not repent, though I did repent. And he explains that. In fact, let me just read this first. I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. And then I'm going to look at that next phrase in a minute and really expound it before we end here. But here's the point. There have been so many times when the church has disciplined and you and I are not in that church and we only get wind of it secondhand or thirdhand. And really, every church discipline is a potential hurt feelings. And I am, I've learned to be, I, I wasn't always, but I've learned, learned <coughs> that I will hear <coughs> of a scenario where somebody, a church disciplined someone, and I'll get a version of it. <coughs> and if that person did not respond to the discipline, you can twist. Tell all I have some water here. Thank you. I knew what you're, you're such a kind man. But you forced me to drink that, so thank you. But here's, here's the challenge is that I have seen people who have, I think, maybe not responded properly. And that's what's tough. You know, you'll get someone that is trying to get you to take up their offense against a church because they disciplined and they did it wrong. And listen, look how they embarrassed me or whatever it is. And you and I need, need to be very careful of that. We're not there. That body is autonomous. But there have been many times where churches reluctantly, lovingly discipline someone and that person didn't respond right and they're going around and they're giving their little spin on it. And so, you know, God bless the church that is going to do the hard things. But 
It's not going to be popular, and sometimes there will be repercussions. Not to say that every church disciplines properly. That is a tough thing. When you're handling a, you know, a church discipline situation. But here, Paul's talking to these believers. And he says, you know, I, 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 did, I do, do not repent, though I did repent. Or I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Again, now verse 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For, now look at this phrase. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. What is that? That ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Sorrow after a godly manner is basically saying that God had an intention. God, God led Paul to write this rebuke to that church. And so was God's intention to just make someone sorry and hurt their feelings? No. God's intention was that it would bring the person to repentance. And that's what he's saying about the idea of godly sorrow after a godly manner. This is what God wanted that you might receive damage by us in nothing. In other words, in the long run, we ended up we didn't harm you at all. Now, that's the risk with church discipline. If somebody does not respond properly, uh, they are going to get offended. They're going to they're twist it in their mind, and they're going to, to go around. And I've seen this. And again, I don't, the, the scenarios I've heard of, the ones that somebody spun it, I don't know if they spun it or not. Maybe the church didn't act properly, but I do know that there's, I'm certain there's some situations where that church lovingly sought to get restoration and and, and have this brother restored or sister restored. And they sought to be very sensitive, but the person didn't respond right. And so they received damage by that church in their mind. And that's what Paul's talking about. You did not receive damage by us in anything. Uh, we, we did not harm you in any way because you responded properly. So now let's go back to Jeremiah or just think about that. Um, God is challenging, Jeremiah is challenging the people of Judah to take this seriously. They didn't realize, in fact, that's why he had to present this scenario kind of in a, in a so they wouldn't understand he was talking about them so they could, they could understand. But the ultimate thing was, Jeremiah was pleading to them, please be serious about this. You know, you, you want to talk about coming back to God. Let's talk about that. This is a serious thing. And there needs to be some fruit of genuine repentance. So for today, folks, it's important that someone's away from the Lord. In fact, someone listening to this online may not be right with God. You might be a believer that is backslidden. You may have gotten saved and you're walking away from God. Um, don't casually come back to God. First of all, you have to realize the seriousness of your sin and take it seriously and praise the Lord. As we're going to see, Jeremiah, his whole point was return to the Lord so he doesn't have to chastise you. He loves you. So I want to challenge you, if you're not right with the Lord, you're not walking close to him, he wants you to walk with him. He wants you to return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you would bless.
As we think of this challenge, we think of Jeremiah's love for the people of Judah, that he wept, that he was brokenhearted, that his heart was really your heart, and hence we believe why you called Jeremiah to, to, to be this last trumpet call, last beacon to, to call Judah to turn, return to you, and, and using so many different words. Father, it reminds us that you are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should be, come to repentance, that you are lovingly uh, willing to give us space to repent, and that uh, those that are walking away from you, those that have been out of fellowship with you, uh, you lovingly rebuke them whom the Lord loves. He rebukes and chastens every son. So, Father, we're so grateful for your loving discipline in our lives. But may it accomplish that which you want it to do. May we return to you so that you are glorified. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's stand. Let's close in song.